Should we obey the law instead of our conscience? Should we follow the letter of the law even though it may offend our conscience? And question two, what is the secular problem of evil? We know of a theological problem of evil, which I will explain, but what is the secular problem of evil and what does it have to do with the story of Billy Budd? This is Dan Del Monte with another, another podcast for Culture Cast. I'm a philosopher and writer living in Philadelphia, and I'm giving a podcast today on a wonderful and great American novella written by Herman Melville, a very uh, philosophical and metaphysical novelist who has given us this short piece about a sailor who is impressed, meaning he's uh, forced into service on a British military ship, taken off his former ship called the Rights of Man. Okay, so the ship he's on is called the Rights of Man. He is impressed or forced into service on this British warship, Bello Potenti. I think that means like uh, war... War strong, something like uh, strong for war. It's Latin, belly patenti. And the story unfolds from there. And it's going to give us um, insight into these two themes I bring up uh, at, at the outset of this podcast. Should we obey the law over our conscience? And number two, what is this secular problem of evil? Uh, Billy Budd has also been adopted into a wonderful opera by Benjamin Britten. And I encourage you to go watch the opera, which I'll put in the show notes. It's remarkable, very moving. Although there's one key flaw in the plot that I'll point out eventually. Now, uh, I will, in this podcast, give spoilers. I'm going to assume that you have read Billy Budd. And um, I need to, I need to cover, cover the plot, so if you haven't read it, go read it, or watch the opera. Um, or, but just, just be warned that if you are listening to this, I'm going to give you the plot. And it's, it's worth your while, because I'm going, to, I'm going to be using the plot as an entranceway into uh, these philosophical themes that I find quite interesting. So here's a brief plot. We have Billy Budd, who is this good-looking young guy. He's very happy and very um, easygoing. He actually embraces his new life on the ship. Uh, he doesn't have, a, doesn't have a problem with it. He's not uh, disgruntled or upset by the fact that he was impressed. Uh, he was forced into service. Now we have this other character by the name of Claggart. And Claggart has a role of authority on the Belly Potenti, the British warship. Claggart is a so-called master at arms, all right? He's going around watching these men to see if they show any signs of mutiny. Because at this time, there's this um, Enlightenment style 
belief in the rights of man. And of course, taking someone uh, and forcing them into basically slavery aboard a warship will be a violation of these rights. So Claggart is very uh, vigilant over the sailors because there's these ideas emerging from, in the novel, uh, specifically France, uh, of the French Revolution, emphasizing the rights of the common man and the British conservative government is insisting upon loyalty to the king. And Claggart is going around enforcing this code of loyalty to the king and country. Billy Budd uh, has a stammer. It gives this impression of innocence, of um, uh, harmlessness. And it seems like Claggart, and this is key, just conceives a hatred for Billy Budd that really has no rationality. This is a key detail. It's like Claggart just hates Billy Budd. Not for any rational reason. Like we might hate someone because they're taking away something from us. Like uh, they stole something from us and we hate them because they have hurt us in that manner. We hate someone because they've mistreated us in some manner. Okay? Uh, but Claggart's hatred is just unfounded. He just has this intense hatred that leads him to really attack Billy Budd. Okay? And this is known in the Bible as the mystery of iniquity. Okay? Uh, there's a mystery... Uh, about evil, it just seems to just attack people. And there's, there's this evil force in the world that we can't rationally understand. It just seems to crave to destroy. And whereas most human behavior is driven by some kind of rational incentive, it seems like Claggart just is evil for the sake of evil. Okay, so I'm going to read a couple quotes from uh, this text to give you an idea of what Melville means by this so-called mystery of iniquity, and it becomes important when I talk about the secular problem of evil. Okay, so uh, I'm turning to uh, Billy Budd, and I'm going to read uh, a couple quotes. Okay, um, so Melville, or the, speaking through the narrator, um, he's talking about how Claggart has suddenly become so-called down on uh, Billy Budd, who's, again, this happy-go-lucky, perfectly harmless individual who would never even imagine of committing mutiny. So why is Claggart so upset? Melville says, but at heart... And not for nothing, as the late chance encounter may indicate to the discerning, down on him, secretly down on him, he assuredly was. Okay. 
Now, this displeasure with Billy Budd is quite mysterious. Budd didn't do anything to Claggart. Okay, he didn't show any signs of mutiny. In fact, we're going to see that Claggart sets up Billy Budd. Claggart is going to set up Billy Budd to make it seem like he's thinking of mutiny, get him in trouble with the captain, and what's going to end up happening is Billy Budd is hung for treason by the captain because of Claggart's machinations. Okay? And the narrator says, For what can more partake of the mysterious than an antipathy spontaneous and profound, such as is evoked in certain exceptional mortals by the mere aspect of some other mortal, however harmless he may be, if not called forth by this very harmlessness itself. So it's like this uh, spontaneous antipathy. Spontaneous meaning just arising from, from nothing. There's no grounds for it. Okay, so again, you can hate someone because they stole something from you or they have hurt you in some way. But Claggart's antipathy comes from harmlessness. Okay, it's, it's based on nothing. Okay, and so the narrator says, to get from a normal nature to Claggart, uh, you have to cross a deadly space. Okay, that's the phrase that Melville uses, that Claggart is somehow separate from ordinary human psychology. And he's showing this very peculiar and very mysterious hatred uh, for the sake of hatred. Okay, so we act for incentives. We act for reasons. But Claggart just has this irrational hatred. And it's mysterious. Okay, we can see that in our world. Where there are people who just seemed hellbent on destruction. Even though it may not achieve any useful objective for themselves. I'm not talking about just merely selfish people. Okay, we're crossing a barrier, crossing a threshold into the mystery of iniquity. Okay, where people just crave evil. Not because of anything they may get but evil for its own sake. Okay? So what happens is that Claggart falsely accuses Billy Budd of planning a mutiny. Uh, Captain Veer, who is uh, a tragic figure, he's running the Belly Potenti, summons both Budd and Claggart into his uh, office, I guess you would call it, or his cabin. Uh, Bud hears the accusations of Claggart. Bud is completely shocked and, st and stunned. In Bud's disarray and in his shock, and this is the, the, the flaw in the plot that I mentioned earlier, Bud just lashes out and strikes Claggart. And with this vicious blow, which is purely by accident, Claggart ends up dead. Okay, this is the very um, bad flaw, I think, in Melville's plot, where 
Bud just kind of freaks out and hits Claggart. He has no weapon. And Claggart somehow dies from this blow. So I wouldn't think that a grown man would die of a punch. That could maybe cause you to pass out. Maybe we could get some more information and have like Claggart has some kind of condition, some kind of condition that causes him to, to die because of this fierce blow. But the key is that Bud does this by accident. It's a spasmodic strike. Okay. And uh, he kills Claggart. So what, what, this puts Veer in a tough spot because Veer does not think Bud is guilty. He does not believe Claggart based upon Bud's demonstration of high character and loyalty. Claggart accuses Bud of mutiny and disloyalty to the king. And um, what happens is that Claggart um, is operating under British law. And here's the conflict I, I opened with. Should we follow the law over our conscience? Okay, sometimes the law is very rigid. So Claggart is operating under, I'm sorry, um, Veer, the captain, is operating under the so-called Mutiny Act. And it doesn't admit of exceptions. So it's a very harsh law. You can't get around it. Um, so it's like if you unintentionally killed uh, a superior or if, if it wasn't due to malicious intent, it doesn't matter. It's based entirely on the act. So if Bud caused um, Claggart to die, even though it was unintentional, this falls under the Mutiny Act and um, forces Veer's hand to put Bud to death. And with a lot of regret, and he's haunted by the decision, Veer hangs Billy Bud. Okay? So, again, Melville is quite philosophical, and I think that these characters represent these um, philosophical ideas. Um, so we have this passage about Billy Bud, and how he is like this, this Adam-like figure. He's like Adam in the Garden of Eden, this pure, untainted man. Um, and the narrator tells us that Bud is like an upright barbarian. He has not been um, citified. He has not gone into the city and taken on the conventions of human culture. He is this pure and innocent kind of like a barbarian because he's just so naive and he's so trusting. Um, he's not citified and sophisticated. Okay. Um, which is why it's so shocking that Claggart um, kills him. Uh, sorry, I'm sorry. Claggart sets him up. So you have like this opposing types of someone who is just pure and innocent and someone who is so diabolical that they um, just embrace evil for evil's sake. Okay. Um, so this idea of this very strict legalism, um, interestingly, uh, Melville's father-in-law was a judge, and this is the mid-19th century where there's the uh, Fugitive Slave Act, which is going to force people in the North 
if they find a slave that has fled uh, their plantation, to return that slave to the plantation. Okay, uh, it's a very uh, oppressive law, and uh, nevertheless, it, it became law. And so the, the, the crisis was, do I follow the law, or do I break the law um, to follow my conscience? Okay, so, I mean, arguments could be made for both sides. On the one hand, uh, you want to preserve the stability of your society. Right? So there's a process by which laws are made. Um, if you want to change it, you can change it through some kind of process, through petitioning and argument. Um, but you shouldn't go around and just break it if you disagree with it because that just hurts the uh, social fabric. Um, it leads to disorganization and ultimately anarchy. So out of respect for the peace and stability of your society, you're going to, you're going to follow the law even if you disagree with it and then try to work for change in some legal manner. Okay? At the same time, though, you might think that any law that uh, is humanly made, it doesn't respect certain um, fundamental laws that come from God. That human law is invalid. Okay, it's not binding because there are certain laws and rights we get from God. And a human law could violate those rights that we get from God. And the God-given rights supersede the humanly um, created laws. So, there's a Supreme Court justice that uh, goes by, the, his name is uh, Neil Gorsuch. He's a recent appointee by Trump. Um, I'm sure you've probably heard of him. And he follows this philosophy of legal literalism. Okay, it's, it's quite interesting that, you know, his job as he sees it, is to enforce the letter of the law. As a judge, he's not there to uh, tell us what he thinks or, or enforce his values. He has to just tell us whether a certain act is consistent or inconsistent with the law as it has been made by Congress. This is a very um, humble role for the judge and the idea is that it respects separation of powers. So the judiciary branch has a certain limited role. That is to uh, see if something is illegal or not. The role of the, ju the judge is not to make new law. Okay, So um, it's not like Veer could just say, well, the Mutiny Act might say there are no exceptions, that we're going to focus on the act, not the intention. Veer uh, might also say, well, I don't agree with this in this case. I don't agree with the Mutiny Act. I'm going to show leniency to uh, Billy Budd and break the law because my conscience is commanding me to do so. Okay, so uh, for someone like Gorsuch, uh, a judge can't do that. A judge has to uh, follow the law as it is written in a literal manner. We get this very starkly in this case of a truck driver 
who is driving through Illinois in the deep winter of 2009. Okay, uh, the brakes on his trailer froze uh, because it's so cold. The truck driver calls his company, which is Trans Am, and he waits several hours for a repair truck to come. He's out there in the cold, freezing, waiting hours. Um, the, the truck doesn't come, and so this truck driver unhitches his truck from the trailer, so he takes the cab, and he drives away, leaving that big trailer full of goods unattended. All right, so he's getting so cold out, out there uh, in, in the bleak winter of Illinois um, that he just decides to um, take the cab and drive off to find shelter and warmth, leaving the trailer by itself where it could be vulnerable to a, a, some kind of theft. All right, so um, what happens is that Trans Am fires this guy for abandoning the trailer, um, and this judge steps in, so this truck driver takes legal action, and the judge says, um, no, 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 that's wrong. You can't fire this poor guy for just trying to protect himself um, from the cold. Uh, now Gorsuch, um, again, this legal literalist, he says, no, 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 uh, this, this termination was fine. Okay, And he says, um, a trucker was stranded on the side of the road late at night in cold weather and his trailer brakes were stuck. He called his company uh, for help and someone there gave him two options. So, so the, the brakes are, are on the trailer are stuck. So that's why he broke off the cab because if he takes, he can't take the, take, take, take the trailer because the brakes are stuck. All right. So the company gets him two options, including the option to sit and wait for help to arrive. So the company says, um, just hang in there. We're going to give you help. All right. Uh, of course, it says the trucker did not sit and wait, but instead decided to unhook the trailer and drive his truck to a gas station. Gorsuch writes, it might be fair to ask whether Trans Am's decision was a wise or kind one. But it's not our job to answer questions like that. Okay, and Gorsuch finds that the laws currently on the books do not prohibit Trans Am from firing this poor guy who... Um, was just trying to um, get warm when the company didn't come to come to help him in timely timely manner. Okay, so Gorsuch thinks the laws don't prohibit that kind of firing, so I can't come in and say, well, even though the law says nothing, my values forbid this kind of behavior. All right, so Gorsuch is like fear. I have to follow the law, even though. I might, I might violate my conscience, okay? And um, there's a strong case to be made for this approach. Uh, you don't want judges to impose their beliefs in a ways that are extra legal um, because, you know, they may end up imposing things that are, are very bad and... Um, 
there's no way to uh, remove them. So these judges are, at least on the Supreme Court, are appointed for life. So you, you want to restrain their power because if we give someone absolute power, they could abuse it. Uh, they may think they're doing something good, but really what they're doing is, is very destructive. Okay? So that's the first angle on the story of Billy Budd, um, this legal literalism. But there's another more metaphysical and, to me, even more interesting angle. This is the secular problem of evil. Okay, so secular meaning without God. There is a theological problem of evil. And this is the problem posed by evil to God's existence. The problem goes as follows. If God is perfectly good, perfectly powerful, he can do whatever he wants, he has no limitations, and he's omniscient, he knows all, okay? then why is there evil? Okay, if God is this powerful and this all-knowing and perfectly good, then the entailment seems to be that he would stop evil. But he doesn't. Evil is real. So God, therefore, must not exist. Okay? That's the problem of evil. There are ways to address it. But just keep that in mind. There's a theological problem of evil. If you take away God, the problem of evil seems to go away. So if you just have nature without God, and there are these bad things happening, well, there's no mystery, right? Because nature is just blind matter. And if it hurts us, if there's an earthquake or some kind of, you know, forest fire that's caused naturally, uh, we shouldn't um, think that there's some kind of some kind of conceptual problem, like there would be with a, an all-good God. Um, so, if just blind nature is causing problems, that's not a, that's not a philosophical problem. Okay. Now, what this article I read, um, it's by Peter Kivy. K i v y. Is a philosopher at Rutgers. And what he's talking about is uh, the secular problem of evil. So take away God. There's still a problem of evil. And I think he captures beautifully what's going on in Billy Budd. The secular problem of evil has to do with um, just human beings and our cruelty to one another. So, in the character of Claggart, you have an individual who plots and schemes to achieve this end of destroying a man's life. And the only way to explain it is that he just likes to destroy. So, this itself is a problem because human beings are supposed to be rational. Why would we spend so much effort and time achieving a goal that doesn't, achieve, that doesn't have any kind of benefit for us? Okay, so there's this theory called 
uh, psychological egoism. And this is a theory that we can never act unless we're motivated by self-interest. So everything we do has some kind of purpose for our own benefit. Even when we help someone else, we are gratifying ourselves in some manner. Right? So there's some kind of rebound effect that helps us. All right, so you know, you could give to charity and that would nevertheless be an egoistic act because you're say improving your, your reputation. Okay? So it's not like um there are these selfless acts. Uh, they may seem like they're for other people, but really, you're getting something out of it. Okay? Now, the psychological egoist can't explain the behavior of Klegert. So, like, there's these two extremes of extreme selflessness of someone who just does something good because it's good and not because of any kind of benefit. Okay? Someone who gives up their life and there's no personal incentive for it. And then you have, the, like, Klegert, who is committed to evil even though there's no psychological benefit. There's no egotistical benefit for what he does. Okay? And so there is this dark, brooding mystery around Claggart, and it creates a problem of evil. Okay, he's this individual who is um, set apart. There is this boundary with the cross, as the narrator points out in the story, to get to this um, peculiar uh, state where we seem to value evil for its own sake. And it's an irrational desire. So here's a great quote from the narrator. And I'm going to um, reach my conclusion very soon. Uh, Though the man's even temper and discreet bearing would seem to intimate a mind peculiarly subject to the law of reason, not the less in heart he would seem to riot in complete exemption from that law, having apparently little to do with reason further than to employ it as an ambidexter implement for affecting the irrational. Okay, so that's kind of a wordy phrase, but a very rich um, and, and beautiful sentence um, about a person who's very calm. This is not someone who is uh, acting... Uh, impulsively, this is someone who's plotting and scheming in a very cold and mechanical manner. A very cold and calculating person who uses his reason to serve an end that is completely irrational. So it's um, Claggart just wants to take down Billy Budd even though there's no personal gain to be had. And he's using all his resources of intellect to achieve this end. This is the mystery of iniquity. This is the problem of evil on the human plane. 
the secular problem of evil. Okay? Are there possible examples in today's world of just a diabolical mindset of people who just... Like, what are you getting out of this act? Is it just evil for evil's sake? Okay, so most of the time you can... You, can, there, you know, of course, there's evil, but you can make sense of it. So maybe this bomb in Beirut. Who was behind it? Hezbollah? Well, maybe they got rid of uh, opposition... Um, leader. Okay, so you got rid of the opposition leader, you terrorize the population who's protesting against you, and you secure your power. So those are benefits, egotistical benefits, that explain this evil act. But are there examples of just people who are just hellbent on destruction uh, of other people, even though there's just no rationale for it. Okay, think about it. Um, I, I think you, can, you, you in a way you can, you can, you, we can spot that. Okay, where there, there's something beyond just a selfish human being. It's an evil principle at work that just seeks evil because that's its, that's its, its nature. And it's not driven by any kind of objective apart from evil. So you could um, seek something good for yourself and do evil things to get it. But then there's this mysterious principle of evil for the sake of evil. And that's what Billy Budd is talking about. It's like this... Is what we see an accurate picture of reality? We go through life thinking that what we see and observe is an accurate reflection of reality, but in fact, it seems like our perspective is quite limited. And with new discoveries in science and philosophy, we start to challenge our basic assumptions and realize the limitations of our perspective. Hello, this is Dan Del Monte from CultureCast. I'm a philosopher and writer living in Philadelphia. And I'd like to talk about today an article that really caught my attention. And it encourages us to um, revolutionize our way of thinking, to go back to uh, first principles, okay, to enter into the state of doubt where We look at all our beliefs as possibly uh, relative to our historical period, to our place in uh, society, and therefore questionable. And we go back to a first principle so that we can really have a true grasp of reality. The article is entitled, The Invisible Strings. How to See the World Like Nobody Else. And it's by Zat Rana. And I will put a link to this article in the show notes. 
So the premise of this article is that there's been a recent scientific discovery of an ability of uh, astral bodies, uh, planets and stars, to interact even over tremendous, tremendous distances. Okay, distances of 10 to 20 million light years. Okay, so that's a fantastic distance. But science is discovering that there could be ways for these very distant bodies to interact with one another. Okay, so this is an unimaginable force. We don't quite understand it. Uh, it's something that connects these bodies. Um, even in spite of this great distance, we understand gravity, but this force seems to be even more powerful than gravity. So this discovery shows that our understanding of cause and effect is incomplete, the way objects are related in our environment. We have this understanding that, that you know, you know, we can push something and cause it to move. Uh, we have cause and effect, but because of these unknown and unobserved forces, we have to conclude that reality is more sophisticated than we think it is, and there is this non-obvious cosmic web. So there's this unseen, unobserved, unknown web causing things to interact, which we can't understand. So we have a very limited cause-effect understanding. Um, so, you know, I push the book, the book falls, I pick up the pen, and then I drop it, and gravity pulls the pen to the ground. But there's more to it than that. Given this evidence of interaction between these um, very distant bodies. Okay, so the key term here is an umwelt. U-M-W-E-L-T. I believe it's a German word. Okay. But the idea is that we each have an umwelt. It may vary from individual to individual. And certainly it varies from species to species. So for instance, a bat uses echolocation to travel around. A dog has a very keen sense of smell. So they have an umwelt that is totally foreign to us because we as human beings don't use uh, echolocation or our sense of smell as much as a dog would, okay? And so between individuals too, because we have different um, cultural backgrounds and different upbringings and we have different ways of filtering information. So we each live in a different umwelt as individuals. Okay, so our senses are incomplete maps of reality. We have certain uh, ways of accessing reality, but we can put the pieces of the puzzle together and find that our way is limited, that reality is richer than, than our modalities um, provide access to. So we as human beings have the advantage of being able to learn and to grow cognitively more so than a dog or a bat. We can push back against these limitations of our umwelt 
and also under, just understand that they 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 exist. Okay, we, we we're self-aware of our own limitations, um, and we can gradually expand them. And it's really a great um, joy to embark on this journey of philosophical exploration that pushes back against our umwelt. So what do we need to do to begin this exploration? Well, this article recommends a process of unlearning. Okay, so to just suspend all your prior prejudices, all your conditioning, as we go through our childhoods getting these, uh, we get our language from other people, we get certain basic ideas that we think are just transparently true, but maybe just products of our culture. Okay, so we need to break out of the illusions of our conditioning. At least just put them in suspense and be able to question them and to become aware of them. Okay, so we have these intersubjective myths. So we have these myths that unite us as a culture. Um, we have these memes and ideas in a shared culture that shape the way we think. Okay, so it could be like um, the idea of American exceptionalism, the idea that we ha- we're a special place and we have certain high principles of human freedom. And in spite of our imperfections, over the course of history, America has been a place of um, liberty, a beacon of hope uh, for the world, that people could realize their potential in ways that are unfettered by oppressive governments. Okay, So this could be a certain kind of myth. All right, It could be a certain religion that you were raised in, where, um, you know, there's a, there's a benevolent God watching over you. And that's uh, an intersubjective myth that you pick up from other people about the way the world works. Okay, so um, we're having um, a, like a, a culture war where people are trying to take over um, the cultural space of intersubjective myths. Or defining um, what reality is for our culture. Okay, so it's like atheists versus Christians. Um, it could be fights uh, uh, between Christians. It could be people who are Marxist and they want to undermine uh, the American system. Okay, um, so there are these myths. And there are these um, interobjective institutions. Okay, so these are technologies and systems that um, shape our our reality. Um, educational systems. Okay, we, we we go to school. We learn things. We learn things about the way the world works. Uh, we have a media, media shaping our perception of what's important, what's worth getting worried about. Okay, the coronavirus, the um, the need to, the so-called need to um, lock down in response to a virus. Okay, so um, these are um, institutions. So uh, the the government. So we we we. We look to the government to give us an answer. So what do we do? Our government tells us and we trust it. So these are our 
interobjective institutions that control the flow of information. Okay. But the problem is that these kind of this kind of molding can lead you to have a distorted view of reality. And so if you really want to begin the philosophical journey, you need to go to first principles thinking. Okay? Start from the ground up. Become aware of your fundamental presuppositions. Okay? So you may think something is timelessly true when in fact it's just time bound. It's something that is peculiar to your culture, peculiar to your way of life. It's not something that is is absolutely true. Okay, so try to unpack these presuppositions that may seem to be absolutely true, but actually are, are products of your culture, of your intersubjective um, myths, and your interobjective institutions that have shaped the way you think. Suspend them, look at them critically, and f- try to find that first principle on which you can anchor uh, further beliefs. Try to find that unconditioned um, principle that's that's independent of any kind of acculturation or um, immersion in a certain time period. All right, so uh, this is a short talk, but I think it's very interesting. I'm going to give you a link to this article in the show notes. And um, good luck in trying to break out of your umwelt.